Today's sermon is from Luke 20, 20 to 47. We'll be reading from the NIV translation. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. It is right for us, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with the question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now there are seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third, married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around with flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, houses, and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Before we dive into that passage of scripture that we've just read, it would be remiss of me not to acknowledge the Andre family at this time. Uh, you may have stumbled across our website and effectively you're joining us today and joining this service. Uh, but for those of us who call White Rock Baptist Church home, this week has been a difficult week for us. Ellis Andre was my predecessor here at White Rock Baptist. He was the senior pastor. He served faithfully and preached uh, with incredible wisdom and just scholarly genius, I would say. Uh, he shepherded the flock and cared for this congregation, even as he served in many various capacities and this past week, Ellis Andre passed away peacefully in the early hours of Thursday morning. Uh, and so we as a church mourn with Ruth Andre uh, and the extended family of his children and grandchildren. And even as we mourn, uh, it's that mixture of also celebrating because we know that Ellis is now free of pain, free of the earthly disease that uh, ravaged his body. And he walks the streets of gold. And we know that there will be a time when we will join with him and experience what he is experiencing right now. 
So certainly as a congregation, as a leadership, and as a pastoral team, our prayers are with Ruth and with the family at this time. May they know God's richest blessings, and may they know peace in this time. You know, as we kind of open up that passage of Scripture that we've just read, I'm reminded that Jesus is the answer. Uh, You know, Joan Osborne sang a song, One of Us, many, many years ago. Some of you might remember that song. Uh, And in the song, she asks the question, what if God was one of us? Uh, And in her singing, one of the lines she says is, well, if you were standing face to face with God, what would you ask him? And I think that's an amazing question. I know I have grappled with that. If I had that opportunity to stand before God, what is it that I would ask him? I'm pretty sure most of us probably have a few answers to that kind of ready to go. You know, we might ask something like, well, why is there evil in the world? Or why did I lose a loved one? Uh, Or why has this tragedy taken place? Or why did that event take place? And, And all these kind of why questions. Some of us might even move on to some of the how questions. You know, we, we want to know, well, how did this all come about? How did, how did you create the earth? How? How? And so we have these questions that we want to ask. As we look through Luke and as we look at today's passage of Scripture, I want to encourage you to show that Jesus welcomes our questions. Jesus has no problem with questions, especially if they come from a humble, genuine heart that longs to know the truth and longs to know the answer. Now, of course, not only does Jesus answer our questions, but Jesus is the answer to our questions. Uh, there are many jokes during the rounds of Sunday school where it does, almost doesn't matter what the question is, the answer is going to be Jesus. And as we read through today's passage, well, we kind of realize that, yes, Jesus Christ is really the answer. We've read from Luke chapter 20, verses 20 to 47, and there are a bunch of questions that get asked in this passage. In fact, the entire chapter is a bunch of questions. Uh, Three questions that get asked of Jesus, and then one question that Jesus asks. And it makes sense that there would be a chapter just with all these questions because life is full of questions. It starts off, if, if you've ever had a young child, and I know you were at one stage a young child, children are forever asking, why? Why this? Why is the sky blue? Why is grass green? Why do I have to brush my teeth when I go to bed? Or why can't I have cake and dessert before dinner? I still don't actually have a good answer for that because I ask the same question now and again. But children ask a million questions because they they want to know. Although the reality is you and I still ask a million questions. We might not always verbalize them, but the questions are there nonetheless. Our lives are filled with questions. Some might even say our lives are filled with more questions than answers. It's true to note that humans are the only species on this planet who have this powerful, even maddening capacity to reason, to doubt, and to question. 
you know, the, the animals that I've had as pets, even the ones that seem to be intelligent, and none of them had questions. They simply responded to events and responded to things or reacted to things happening to them. It is you and I, it is humanity who has this profound ability to ask questions. And of course, we ask questions often around things that we know very little of. And the reason is, it's because we have this curiosity, maybe a, a complicated curiosity. We want to know what we do not know. And we want to find out and we want to perhaps know so that we might be a little bit smarter. Of course, as we ask questions, as we try and become a little smarter, we may occasionally end up in that territory of what my mother occasionally labeled me as a child. I wasn't smart, I was a smart aleck. And certainly in this passage of scripture that we read today, uh, the Sadducees could be called smart alecks. Several times through this passage of scripture, the leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, those with religious power and, and in a sense religious authority come to Jesus with these questions, but they come across almost like smart alecks. It appears they're not too interested in the answer. They're not too interested in what Jesus has to say. In fact, they have leading questions to try and trap him up, to try and catch him out. They begin that, as we looked at last week, when they asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing this? And of course, because Jesus knows their heart and he twists the question and asks them a question, they don't answer because they're not interested in the answer and in the truth. They just want to trap him out. In the first question we read this, in this passage today, uh, we read that spies have been sent. Uh, it's that image of people who have infiltrated the crowd, and maybe they look like the crowd, and they look like the audience that are soaking up the wisdom and soaking up the teaching, but we know that they're sent there as spies. They want to catch Jesus out. And, and so they think they have this foolproof question for Jesus. Because the reality is, regardless of how Jesus answers this question, he's going to be in trouble either way. And so they ask him, well, Jesus, should we pay tax to Rome? Should we pay Caesar this tax? Because... If Jesus says, yes, we should pay tax to Caesar, well, then the religious re rulers and those scribes and teachers and the, the um, spies in that crowd, well, now they can sway the crowd against Jesus. Jesus is just a, a Roman sympathizer. Look, he's in league with our oppressors. How can we listen to this person? And, and they would then try and write him off. But on the other side, if Jesus, Jesus says, no, we should not pay tax to Caesar and to Rome, well, now they can go straight to Rome and, and have him tried for, for revolt or instigating revolt. They could have him tried for treason. I hear this man says we shouldn't pay tax. We need to deal with him. And of course, we know the only punishment that would be fitting for that would be execution. And so they believe they've got Jesus in this catch-22 situation. The smart Alex think they have Jesus trapped. And then in this the stroke of genius, and we are reminded that Jesus is God incarnate walking among us, but endowed with the Holy Spirit. And I have no doubt, even though the passage doesn't say it, but I have no doubt that Jesus constantly was in that prayerful uh, spirit of praying, God, give me wisdom, God, help me. And, 
And so he has this brilliant stroke of genius where he says to them, well, bring me a coin. Now, a, a tax coin in those days was one denarii. And so Jesus says, show me the coin. And, and of course, they pull out their one denarii coin. And Jesus goes, well, whose inscription is this? Whose image is on the coin? And the one denarii coin had the face of Caesar inscribed on it. And so, of course, they go, well, duh, it's Caesar. And so Jesus says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to the Lord what is the Lord's. And we might skim over that. We, we totally understand it. We see the brilliance of give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And we go, oh, okay, yes, yeah, sure, of course. Well, wow. But we might skim over that little portion where Jesus goes, well, give to God what is God's. What, what does that mean? What could that mean? Well, if we stick with the very immediate context, Jesus is going, whose image is on this coin? It's Caesar's. And my scripture tells me that you and I, we are made in the image of God. We bear the image of God. Is it not possible that Jesus is subtly telling his spies and those critics in this audience to say, well, if you bear the image of God, then give to God what is God's. Give to God your very life. Live for him and for his kingdom and for his glory. If we belong to God, then surely we should give our lives to him and serve him. And so Jesus answers their question. And, and of course, he silences those spies and silences that group. But there are still other groups. And so the second question gets asked of Jesus and this next group of questioners, the Sadducees, come along. And, and the Sadducees, as Luke explains, and as we know from the rest of Scripture, uh, came to ask Jesus a question about the resurrection, but they don't believe in the resurrection, which is already kind of interesting. You know, there's no way Jesus can give a right answer if they don't even believe what they're asking Jesus. But in a sense, they're saying, well, Jesus... What is heaven like? What is the afterlife like? What is the resurrection like? You see, the, the Sadducees believed that the Torah, the books of Moses, so the, five books of the, the first five books of the Old Testament, were the only true scriptures. And so those scriptures don't speak about resurrection and don't speak about life after death. So a good Sadducee believed that a good Jew wasn't interested in the afterlife. And in fact, we should only concern ourselves with the life here and now. We should only think about what it is to be alive right now. And so they ask this question, even though they don't believe it, even though it might seem foolish. But of course, for you and I who live on this side of Scripture as we read through and as we've had experience of family members and loved ones passing away, it's a fitting question. What is the afterlife like? What is the resurrection like? What is this hope? John Killinger uh, tells a story of a bright-eyed, comical little woman, uh, the kind of person who enjoyed a good joke until the day she died. And he tells the story of during her last years of life, as she struggled with diabetes, she was told she may not consume any sugar or any salt. And of course, not consuming sugar wasn't too difficult because of all the substitute products. So she could still have sweetener in her coffee or dessert, whatever the case might be. 
a bit salt really got to her because there's no real or adequate substitute for salt. And so he tells the story of how she sat one morning looking at her eggs for breakfast and not being able to salt them was feeling particularly down. And, and she made the comment, she said, if heaven is like it is supposed to be, then I think I shall spend the first thousand years licking a salt block. Now, of course, that might not be your idea of heaven. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be licking any salt blocks. But if heaven is like it's supposed to be, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be surfing some really good waves for at least the first thousand years. None of us knows what heaven or, or the afterlife or the resurrection will truly be like. Yet through faith, we imagine. And we imagine all sorts of things. And, and of course, we imagine based on what we enjoy. I had to chuckle when I was reading through and discovered that C.S. Lewis, the Christian author and apologist that we know so well, actually hoped that heaven would be filled with good cigars that never burn up. It seems absurd for many of us, but yet that was his image of heaven. Karl Barth, one of the uh, theologians of history, uh, said how he loved the music of Mozart. He said, in heaven, the angels play the religious music of Bach when God is around, but they play Mozart when God isn't listening. Most of us who believe have some image of heaven, some image of the resurrection in our minds and in our hearts. But the Bible is wise to remind us that we can't, or, or the scriptures cannot fully explain and describe in human terms what heaven will be like. And so the Apostle Paul simply writes, I has not seen, nor has it ever entered into the human heart, what God has in store for those that love him. Heaven, the resurrection of our dead bodies, the eternal life are images of hope. They're images of that final salvation, and of course they defy human imagination. And because we imagine heaven by faith and not by sight, yes, the door is open to all kinds of speculation and doubt. It's the kind of speculation which suggested in the Sadducees' question about this woman who's married to all the different brothers and, and whose wife will she ultimately be in the resurrection? And now, it's not really a bad question given their understanding of Scripture, and so Jesus says, well, in heaven, it won't be like it is in earth. Marriage won't have that same place because in heaven, people aren't like we know people today and experience people today. Resurrected people don't die. They're more like the angels or they are children of God. And so the point that Jesus is making is not that we will be so different, we won't even recognize each other and, and therefore we don't need to, uh, we won't know one another. Jesus is saying we will be different. We have to be different, especially if we are going to be of the living and seen as God is the God of the living and no longer of the dead. But of course, we'd all like to know more, wouldn't we? How different would our lives be right now if we knew what it would look like, if we knew exactly what was on the other side? Even as we, we've said farewell to Ellis over this past week, and, and he now sees and knows what we long to see and know. If we caught a glimpse, how differently would we live our lives 
today. We can't really say, and therefore we must live by faith and with hope. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians that if the dead are not raised, then we are miserable people and our faith is in vain. He says that because he's reminding us our faith uh, demands hope. Hope even in something that seems so strange as resurrection. But in a world like ours, maybe this is why they're asking the question, what good is resurrection without marriage? Without everything being just like it is in the here and now and, and maybe without even sex? You know, when we talk about marriage and we talk about intimacy and we talk about human relationships, we know what they should be like, even as many of us experience the pain and the heartache and the trauma of those that break apart and and those that end in, in terrible ways. There's still a yearning in our heart to know we know what it should be like. And so we look at heaven and we think, well, surely heaven would be the, the ultimate consummation of that. And so we, we struggle with this concept that heaven won't have marriage and no, it won't have sexual intimacy. But Jesus points out, we will know even as we are fully known. I don't know what heaven and what the new earth and new heavens and what the resurrection will look like, but I know this it will be far more amazing. It will be so much better than anything you and I could imagine or anything you and I could hope for. Everything. And so they ask this question, and Jesus answers it. But then Jesus turns it around, and Jesus asks a question. You know, I I, I read through Scripture, and I love the fact that Jesus allows you and I, he allows the crowds to come to him with their questions. Jesus never drives people away for their questions. But I'm also assured as I read through that at some point, Jesus will ask a question. Jesus turns the questions around, and while we might not always like the answers, and sometimes it almost looks like there is no answer, Jesus doesn't leave it there. He asks us. And so he quotes the Psalms. And and in a nutshell, he says, how is the son of David called the Lord? And what Jesus is doing here is he is subtly asking the teachers of the law. He's asking the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, even the spies in the midst. He is asking them, who do you say that I am? Am I the son of David? Because if I am the son of David, then surely, if you know the scriptures, you would know I am the Lord as well. You know, these scholars should know the answer because they know the scriptures, but they have already rejected Jesus. They have seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching. They understand he has authority even though they won't yield to his authority. And so Jesus knows this. And so now Jesus confronts them. Jesus has already asked his disciples this same question. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter turns around and he says, well, you are the Christ. And Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Christ is the title. You are the anointed one of God. You are the Messiah. And today, 
even as we grapple with the questions we have for God, even as we come to Jesus with our questions, Jesus turns them around and asks us, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? You know, as I, as I read this passage, as I read the questions and the interactions with Jesus and even the warning against the Pharisees and against those who think they know all the answers and those who love to be celebrated and are proud and arrogant, and as Jesus says, have nothing to do with them, Jesus would remind us today, yes, we will live with unanswered questions about heaven, about life, and even about Jesus. I think you and I who are older can probably learn a thing or two from the millennials and the up-and-coming generations. You know, the up-and-coming generations are learning to live with the tension of understanding that not every question has a nice, neat, clean, concise answer. In fact, they're skeptical of those neat, ordered answers for every question because they understand that not every question has an answer. And when we come to Jesus... We need to understand, Scripture gives us these hints, it gives us these glimpses, it gives us these clues that there is hope. And if we have faith in Christ, if we trust Him, even though we might not have an answer, we have an answer in Jesus Christ. Our questions are never completely answered, but Jesus is always calling us, always compelling us to come and see, to have faith in God, to ask, to seek, and to knock, uh, to, to come to him with our questions. You know, the Sadducees didn't get all their questions answered. In fact, they weren't even happy with the answer that Jesus did give them. Jesus reminds us, come to him. Even as we talk about heaven and about the resurrection and what eternity might look like on the other side of this life, the resurrection is still to come. We are living towards that promise. We are living towards that final answer, not away from them. That means there is hope in this promise. It's not a problem. It is a promise. My friends, you and I are invited to bring our questions to Jesus. He will not turn us away. I do know he will not answer every single question, and he will invite us to live with that faith and mystery if we put our faith and trust in him. But know this, ultimately and finally, Jesus truly will be the answer to every question we might have, because ultimately and finally, Jesus truly is the answer. May you be blessed as you take your questions to the feet of Jesus and as you learn to rest in him. Let's pray together. Ah, Heavenly Father, my Savior and God, Jesus Christ, thank you that you never drove the crowds away when they came with questions. Thank you that you were open to questions and you let us come to you with our questions. Even those big questions of life The big why questions, the big how questions, the big what on earth am I here for questions. Jesus, at the same time, I thank you that you don't answer every single question. You don't give a nice, neat, packaged answer to every problem that might arise. You simply invite us to trust you, 
You simply invite us to look to you as the final and ultimate answer. And so, God, again this morning, we say, yes, Jesus. And we cling to you in hope because we know that hope will, be, will not go unrewarded. What we see and trust for and hope for by faith right now will one day be experienced for eternity in your presence. And for those who are in Christ, we praise you and we say thank you and amen. In Jesus' name, amen.